In this episode of the Sharp End Podcast, Scott tells us about a dangerously fast fall he took on Mount Hood, right into a fumeral. For those of you who don't know what a fumeral is, stay tuned to the very end of the episode when an expert comes on to talk about exactly what these dangerous holes are. I invite you to please check out my brand new website, thesharpendpodcast.com, that I launched on January 1st. I also have a Patreon account now, so if this podcast has brought value to your life, please consider supporting the Sharp End Podcast on the Patreon platform. There are various sponsor levels that you can choose from. Head to patreon.com slash the Sharp End Podcast. Speaking of Patreon, shout out to Ryan from Riverside, California for showing his support. So I have had many guests tell me that better communication could have prevented their accidents. So I was stoked when Rocky Talkie reached out to support the show and you guys. Rocky Talkies are backcountry radios designed by a small team of climbers from Denver. Me and my ski partner recently spent three days ski mountaineering up here in Alaska in single digit temps. And by the end of the trip, my battery life was only down to 71%. These radios are lightweight, waterproof, durable, and the most cost-efficient radios on the market. If you need a radio for your backcountry use, or the radio that you have isn't really working for you anymore, check these out. Rocky Talkie wants to hook you up with a 10% discount to keep you safe in the backcountry. Make sure to use code SHARPEND at rockytalkie.com to get 10% off your radios and to support this podcast. Explore Perfection. That is the mission statement of our newest sponsor, Koros Wearables. Koros builds performance GPS watches that combine high-grade hardware and innovation technology to stand up to the harshest conditions, allowing runners and alpinists to train safely and efficiently. An aspect of Koros that I love, I have a Vertex watch myself, is they constantly release new software features, and this month they're launching an all-new ski touring mode available on the Apex Pro and Vertex watch. This mode was specifically designed for the ski mountaineering community and include auto ascent descent detection and transition, elevation gain loss auto lapse, as well as a navigation with checkpoints feature. Head to koros.com to explore these watches and all the features available or check them out on Instagram at Koros Global. Hey, so I'd like to get to know you, who you are, where you're from, what outdoor activities you like to do. I want to know how I can support you. I want your feedback to make this show as best as it can be for you. So I built out a little survey on my website. It's fast and easy with a handful of questions. By completing this survey, you'll be entered to win one of three prize packs from our partners, an American Alpine Club membership, Rocky Talkies, and CBD products that work. Head on over to the sharpendpodcast.com or check the show notes for more details. I'll be reading some of your submissions throughout the month of February on Instagram, and the winners will be announced on the March 1st episode. Make sure you're following the Sharpen Podcast on Instagram to follow along. And now, welcome to the show, Scott. My name is Scott Miller. I'm 25 years old. Um, I started skiing and climbing um, very recently. I learned to ski when I was 18, but really didn't pick it up till I moved to Utah when I was um, 22 years old. I picked up climbing that same year, 22, 23 years old. So it's only been a couple years since I've really started being in the outdoors um, here in the, the wild, wild west. I grew <laughs> up in <laughs> I grew up in Seattle, um, 
and have a background in bike racing and running racing and triathlon. Uh, I raced for my college when I was then, uh, when I was that age. And after I moved out here, kind of found this love for not necessarily the competitive side of being outside in the outdoors, but wanting to push further and going bigger in the mountains and kind of came to bite me in the last year. <laughs> well, and what a playground you have too. Utah is just so stunning. It truly is. I mean, I live in in Ogden, so about an hour north of Salt Lake City nowadays. And this area, we don't like to tell people, but is full of just untouched and unbridled wilderness. There's so much to explore and so much to do. And it's not the uh, it's not the cottonwoods of Salt Lake City where you go out and you get to ski moguls in the backcountry. There really is unexplored area here still to be found. Um, relatively new to this backcountry skiing, mountain climbing world, um, but I do have that competitive urge. Um, having grown up racing and being in the competitive side of sports, um, I've always been more on the fitness side. Of <laughs> my friends like to make fun of me because I think I could be much happier going on the uphill than even ever having to think about going downhill, whether mm-hmm. that's running or climbing or skiing any of it and realistically i mean i own skimo skis and a skimo suit and like to go uphill as fast as i can and the downhill skiing could be thought about later in life to me really um so we're going to be talking about an accident that i had on mount hood back in the beginning or middle of june this year um where that what i just talked about really came to uh came to fruition middle of june 2020 that's correct on mount hood on Mount Hood in Hood River, Oregon, right outside of Portland. And you were, and it, was, it was a ski trip. That's true. That's correct. I guess we have to back up a little bit further. Um, in early 2020, I did start to pack on some of those bigger mountain objectives. I had a, a very scary experience um, in the Wasatch backcountry in the Heart of Darkness, Kular. Um, that's a pretty well-known line around here. You rappel in, you get to ski down. Um, I took a fall there. And kind of had my life flash before my eyes then as well. But I slowed down, took some time to learn, started to climb in the gym and recover mentally. And it was really hard to come back. Uh, But I learned a lot and had some friends that really helped me through that experience. Um, Then in March, uh, everybody knows that we kind of locked down for COVID. And um, there was a lot of distractions that kind of went away. But a lot of distractions that popped up, having to work from home all the time not really getting to see friends as much, definitely or not family. having con- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No family. And my family's all up in the Northwest. So while I still go home and see them, um, I am out here with my friends. And when you're kind of limited to your house and your work and that's it, it starts to get a little boring. So I spent a lot of time in the backcountry skiing in the resorts once they shut down, starting to take on some slightly higher risk lines, maybe some more mountaineer type stuff, but really starting to push those those boundaries of what I was capable of and learning the snow and how to be safe in the mountains this spring while I was here in, in Utah while everything was shut down. And I think of that as an incredible experience that I got to do that in the safety of a resort without having to deal with all the people that were there. I got to skin up and to dig my pits and see the snow develop and go through a whole season of relative safety on on limited slopes, really. Um, But as the world kind of started to open back up, my work had me plan to go on a trip out to California. Um, When I got told I was heading out that way, one, there was a little bit of nervousness about COVID, but um, the prospect of kind of getting to go out there and ski some volcanoes really popped up on my mind really quickly. (laughs) Um, Having grown up looking at Mount Rainier, that's a, a lifetime goal to climb that and start to push some of the bigger mountains on the West Coast. But 
Um, I found two on the West Coast that called to me because they were easy. Um, motivated a little bit by the the um, 50 Classic Ski Descents in North America book and Cody Townsend and getting to see what he's doing. And um, So I found Mount Hood and Mount Shasta. I picked uh, two routes on Mount Hood. Um, the old shoot, just kind of the classic trade route as kind of an intro line. We were going to see how that went. And then go over, do the Y East route, um, and then come down south and do Mount Shasta and then head to work um in right outside of san francisco and then i also threw my climbing gear in the car because i thought i might be able to get a, a day pass into yosemite and get to see yeah, somewhere else and know right i mean <laughs> why not throw it in there you're going that way <laughs> exactly exactly um so yeah after i kind of started to do all this research and figure out what i wanted to do i kind of started to put the you know do my background find out what was going on start to find the beta ask around on facebook peruse the instagram pages exactly find out what it is that these mountains look like and um like i said those routes called to me one because of the book and two because they, they look awesome i mean <laughs> talking to some people at the gym about the pearly gates getting to climb those on mount hood was exciting really um so end of june came loaded up the car bike skis trad gear my bed got to mount hood on the 17th i went for a short little ski just to the top of the lift line awesome snow beautiful weather i was skiing in t-shirt and shorts and uh, it was incredible. So skied back down, cut back to my car, checked in at the ranger station. Um, and there was this kind of really cool community, as there is, it seems to be in a lot of climbing circles right there in the parking lot of uh, of the climbers that were getting ready to go the next day. Um, there was this anxious vibe and the sun was setting. It's really long days up there in the north. So we were all kind of sitting around. We had a beer. We drank, yeah, you know, drank a beer. We had some food. Um, we're all just hanging out. And so I started to meet all these kind of neat people from all around the West coast that had come out there to climb. And pretty much everybody that was there was planning on going up on foot with just skis, uh, with just boots and crampons and an ice axe and the traditional way. Um, I didn't really have a plan on my start time yet. Um, I kind of had done my research online and realized it was probably going to take about, you know, five-ish hours maybe to get up. And talking to these other people, it sounded like they were planning on getting up around sunrise at six o'clock in the morning with a midnight start. Um, so, Oh, so kinda, they're going to they're, they're start climbing at midnight and then summit around 6 a.m.? That's correct, yeah. Gotcha, okay. Um, but I kind of knew that I had a little bit of an advantage on the uphill. I was bringing skis. That was my goal was to try and ski whatever route I kind of felt was safest when I got to the top with goals on the old chute, of course, like I talked about. Um, so I set my alarm for 3 a.m. and I had talked to my buddy back home and he pushed me towards maybe an earlier start and get to the top and, and chill and wait and enjoy the sunrise and enjoy it. Um, so yeah, alarm was set for three. I took my melatonin. I went to bed, put on my mask and tried to get some sleep. It was nine o'clock. The sun was still up. It is, you know, <laughs> it is Oregon after all. So sleep was, uh, a little bit hard to come by. Around 1130, I think somebody drove up next to me and I heard what sounded like kids. They were probably older than I was, but some kids talking and getting ready to climb. And they were that same nervous excitement I was talking about. Um, could tell that there was obviously a little bit of uh, uh, newer experience going on there, teaching each other how to hike. Some, some of them sounded like they were using rental ice axes and crampons. And that actually really inspired a lot of confidence in me um, listening to these people uh, talk about some of what I consider to be like the bare basics of climbing. Mm -hmm. But anyways, I managed to get back to sleep, um, 
alarm went off at 3 a.m., took my caffeine. Oh, too soon. <laughs> yeah, 3 a.m. You got to love an alpine start, don't you? <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I like type 2. So I love to suffer, so I do like alpine starts, but yeah, those, but they are tough. It's, it's true. The alarm goes off, and the first thing you're reaching for is caffeine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Luckily, this was a summer volcano approach, so at least I don't have to worry about cold and getting out of a tent. And I, you know, this is roll out of bed. It's already warm. And yeah. <laughs> um, so I threw on my suit. Um, my friends really wanted me to tell you that I, I did do this in a Skimo suit and the oh, nice. my spandex <laughs> adventures going up mountains. Um, I was having the time of my life. I got up, found all my gear, was ready to go. And I was just excited to be moving. It was about 3.30. So it only took me about a half hour to eat breakfast, get going. Um, and I started to head my way up the mountain. And um, there was this really cool line of headlamps. Anybody that's done any sort of alpine start knows that feeling of kind of chasing the the conga line up a mountain. And it's it really is an incredible experience. <laughs> um, so I'm skiing up, skins on. Um, I got to go really far up with my skins on. I ran into another guy on the way up, and he was just hiking in micro spikes. And we were chatting the entire way up and both kind of pretty excited. And turns out he actually we actually share a first name. Another Scott was on the mountain that day. And uh, when I got down to what's called the right below the hogs back on the mountain, for those that are familiar, it's right where it kind of steepens up. Um, I switched to scre- uh, ski crampons, which give you a little bit of extra purchase in the ice um, to kind of make my way the rest of the way up to um, to the hogs back, which is a very narrow ridge. Um, when I got there, skis came off, crampons went on, ice axe came into my hands to be safe. Um, walked across that narrow ridge, no problem at all, super easy. Um, and I got up to right below the pearly gates, which is this kind of narrow constriction, um, maybe about five to ten feet across, depending on the time of year. In the summer, it's an easy walk up. You just kind of front dagger your way up with an ice axe. So just holding high on the ice axe, you're not swinging it, you're not climbing, you're just really walking up a steep slope. Um, Right when I got there, I figured I should probably put a helmet on and put my hard shell on because it was higher angle. There was people coming down. There was a little bit of ice kind of falling down. So I stood there and put that on. And um, as I was kind of fumbling around with cold hands and getting ready to climb, that other Scott that I ran into was on his way down, which was kind of a neat coincidence because he moved way faster than I did. And I got to kind of give him his little congratulations and know that there was kind of friends on the mountain that day, which is really neat. Um, I pushed on through the pearly gates, super cool, really not hard at all. I've probably climbed um, steeper slopes than that here in Utah, just on regular kind of ski mountaineer days. And right as I was going through that area, the sunrise was coming up behind me. And I got to see that that classic um, shadow, the diamond shadow that mountains cast in the distance. And um, I still got that picture on the wall, on my wall here in the house, even if it was not quite the perfect day. Um, getting to see that is always just an incredible, incredible experience. And so I came right over the crest of the mountain, right at sunrise. Warmth of the sun is always awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, I hit the summit and well, I, it really only took me about three hours. I told you sunrise was around six thirty, seven o'clock. I got a three thirty start. So I was way ahead of schedule. Because the summit of Mount Hood's, what's it, 11,200 something? Yep. Okay. And it's the highest point in Oregon. Yes. And you're standing on top of the highest point in Oregon. 
Yep. When the sun rises. When the sun rises. It was beautiful. I could see Mount Adams in front of me, Mount St. Helens to the north, Rainier off in the distance, to the south, Broken Top and Jefferson, and just a little peak of the sisters down in Bend. And it, and Bend, and it was just, it really was a, a beautiful view. Um, and it's my first true mountaineering experience. So right, can, right. Can and you trained for this. Exactly. I trained for it. And I did this solo. I didn't really mention that at the top. I didn't have any other friends with me. This is COVID. I did do this trip on my own. Um, it's awesome. It really was. But like I mentioned, I dressed in a schemo suit and a hard shell. (laughs) (laughs) It started to get cold really quickly. You're at 11,000 feet, no matter what time of year and whether you're in the sun or not, you sweat. Well, yeah, you're standing on a glacier. I mean, it's a glaciated mountain, right? So you're you're getting cold. So you're at, you're at the top and then, and then what do you do? Um, no, that now next, what comes next, if anybody knows ski mountaineering is you transition and you get ready to ski. My friend had told me like, hang out, Brew a cup of tea, do whatever. Of course, I didn't bring my jet boil. I didn't listen to it as advice at all. Um, so it was time to transition. It was time to put skis on and and start to figure out my way down. So I walked my way over to the Pearly Gates. or not, I'm sorry, not the Pearly Gates, the old chute, which is the, the classic kind of trade descent or ascent, depending on time of year. Um, and uh, looked down and kind of realized this slope is definitely still in the shade. The sun rises off on the east northeast that time of year and this slope is on the exact opposite of that and it's only 7 a.m 7 30 a.m by the time i walk my way over there um so i'm over there helmets on i've got my skis on my back i decide well let's let's see what happens another skier kind of makes his way over that way and turns out he's actually going to speed fly this route which is uh where you use a parachute to kind of glide your way down the mountain which is super rad right <laughs> um and I see him getting ready to go and kind of we fall into that that trap of other people are doing it so I can do it. Uh, so I start to transition. My skis go into the snow or into the ice and I'm getting them on and I'm starting to strap in and making sure I've got all my gear tucked away and my ice axe is back on my pack. Lock the ski boots in. It's like, well, might as well go. I'm getting cold. I don't need to hang out here for very much longer. Um. I kind of side slipped my way down the mountain to where that speed flyer um, was getting ready to go. He was getting his parachute out and I kind of give him a little high five just to, you know, hang out and tell him he's cool and everything. And well, okay, time to go. We got about a thousand feet down below me to get back to the hogs back. And then from there it's come across and, um, well, are you able to when, when you're side slipping down with your skis, are you able to get any purchase in the snow or is it just ice? It was definitely a controlled side slip. Um, it was it, it felt like classic Northwest skiing. I, like I said, I grew up in Seattle and I kind of got used to skiing that cascade concrete. And I skied a lot of pretty crappy conditions here in Utah this year. It, it is what it is. There was a little bit of purchase. I was able to definitely controlled side slip my way down the mountain. Um, after we kind of say my goodbyes i guess to that speed flyer it's one last systems check make sure um you know pull straps aren't on and ski boots are locked in and we're as tight as we're going to be and away we go i side slip a little bit further down the mountain um and um i decide it's time to make a turn old shoots extremely wide if you're standing at the top there's plenty of room to go but I didn't climb this mountain and try to ski it to just side slip my way down it. Right. (laughs) Um, So first jump turn jump. It is 45 or so degrees. It's a jump turn. I come around and my skis do not stick that turn. I did not nail it. Um, My inexperience that kind of let me down. My body weight kind of goes off center. My center of mass is uphill. 
no purchase at all in the snow. My feet immediately drop down the hill and my body, my chest slams into the snow. Um, and this is where it gets really scary because if for anybody who's ever fallen or tomahawked down a mountain, it's that same experience. I, uh, my feet went downhill. My skis are still on. I'm just trying to grab and paw and punch at the snow and the ice and nothing's grabbing. Um, I kind of had this train of consciousness of, you know, just, oh shit, I'm moving really fast. And I got going really quick. I was doing everything I could to try and keep my feet up off the snow. Um, at some point, my skis popped off. They were um, locked into ski mode for those that are familiar with touring bindings. They were not locked in for touring mode. They, they were meant to come off to protect my feet. Um, poles have flown every which direction. My pack's slamming into the back of my head. I'm sliding on my stomach, trying not to flip over. Well, it because got, your suits, what's your suit made out of? Is it made out of? It's a, it's a spandex, spandex suit and I've got a, a hard shell jacket on just a Gore-Tex, like Arc'teryx jacket. So you're slippery. <laughs> I am slippery. Um, and I've practiced myself arrest technique with an ice axe. Um, you don't my, have an ice axe. So I don't have an ice axe. Probably on your backpack. On my, exactly. Yeah. It was strapped uh-huh. to my pack and there's only so much you can do to self arrest without an ice axe in your hand. I'm trying to do everything I can. Um, but really, I start moving fast. I'm trying to press my body into the snow and maximize friction, and there's nothing. Um, I kind of look down through my legs as I'm I'm plummeting down this mountain, um, and I start to s- kind of feel like I'm slowing down a little bit as the slope levels off. But as I look through my legs, I start to see this hole below me. It's called a fumarole. It's a sulfur vent on a volcano. Remember, Mount Hood is an active volcano. And that last moment of terror, and I legitimately screamed um, <laughs> a lot of expletives, but a lot of words um, in terror as I saw that fumarole blow me because I didn't know how deep it went and there was just rocks. Um, and kind of closed my eyes and realized that shit really had hit the fan at this point. Yeah. Um, and I know that it's going to hurt. Um, eyes open. There's a ton of ice kind of plummeting from my from above. And wow, my body is just really sore and there's blood in the dirt and there's a lot of blood in the dirt. But whose is it? Where's this coming from? Oh, this is my blood. OK, I've just got a bloody nose. This is fine. I can still breathe. Seems like I might be OK. I can move my shoulder. It's sore. My hands hurt, but I'm OK. There's still a ton of ice plummeting down from on top of me. Here comes my sunglasses. They fell off and got knocked down in the fumarole at some point. Here comes a, a pole. All this gear is starting to kind of rain down on top of me in the hole along with all the ice shards. All right. Breathe in, breathe out. Let's try and stand up. Let's see what can happen. I try and stand up. My legs are shaking, but I'm able to stand. All that soreness in my body, it's just pure adrenaline. Um, A lot of thoughts going through my head, but most of them are like, all right, I need to get the fuck out of this hole. Because I know it's an active sulfur vent. This can't be good for my lungs. I can't spend any time down here. It seems like nothing's broken. I'm I'm able to stand, even though I'm very shaky and very nervous. And I start to try and walk up the hill. Um, in the How dirt. How deep were you? Um, it's hard to remember. I would say I was probably about twenty feet. It wasn't a straight drop. It's kind of a like a fifty to sixty degree angle, dropping you down into it. And it's all dirt. It's this volcanic ash that gets in everything. Did it? Did the hole go farther down than that? It, it did. So as I started to climb up the hole, up the fumarole, I kind of slipped in the dirt. It's extremely loose, and I slid further back down the hole. And I distinctly remember being warm, like it was 
you know, had been 20, 30 degrees on top of this mountain or lower and down in this hole, it felt like a sauna. Um, so very scary. The ice is dripping and melting on top of me. Um, and then I hear a yell from above that I need to sit still. And luckily some onlookers that had been down climbing the mountain, um, saw me take this tumble, which I can only imagine from their view was the most terrifying thing they'd ever seen. Um, and they were able to help me out. Um, there's some communication. It wasn't far enough away that we had any trouble communicating. Um, but they asked me enough questions, made sure I was okay, made sure I was cognizant. Um, and luckily that morning I had kind of made that split decision to put a harness in my backpack. I have a, a very small kind of mountaineering harness and I was able to get that on, um, even with the shaky legs, the very broken boots, everything still kind of in, in pieces. I was able to get my harness on and they tossed me down a pulley. Um, very quickly they had rigged a three to one. This whole team of people was up on the surface. And as soon as I came out, I realized I was just in incredible hands. Um, I don't remember all the names. Um, I did get checked out. I didn't have a concussion by one of the people there. I was cognizant. They asked me those normal questions. What day is it? What mountain are you on? Who's the president? All those things that you normally get. But the three names I really remember, and I really do want to shout them out, is Nate, Wynn, and Carlton. They were the ones that really helped me out that day. Um, the big thing I wanted to do and that I kept trying to tell these people, it's like, look, we're standing on top of this, this fumarole on top of this hole. And I really don't want anybody else to get hurt. We need to move off the top of this. Um, there and to their credit, they were trying to take care of me. Um, and even more to my credit, m multiple of these people were medical professionals. Um, there was an EMS person there. There was a person that was an eye doctor. There was, it was incredible. Um, car, um, I'm sorry, Wynn, who was there is an older man and he was able to use that experience that he had to rig that pulley system incredibly quick and get me out. While I have kind of full confidence, I would have been able to get out. It would have taken me much longer, been very unsafe. Um, and probably would have put myself and others at danger. Had I been trying to deal with climb out of that dirt hole, <laughs> Carlton was able to lend me an ice ax and I got my crampons back on, hiked my way back up to the hogs back. Um, and I look up the hill and bless his soul, but, um, he had already started walking back up the mountain to grab some of my gear that got stuck in, in the ice on the way up. Um, and he was managed to get one of my skis back. I think he found both my poles even or. Oh, wow. Yeah. And in the time it took me to walk maybe a half mile with his climbing partner for the day back down the hill, um, he had walked up, grabbed all that stuff, put it in a pack and then caught back up to us. Remember this man is like, almost more than 60 years old. <laughs> One of those badass mountaineers that's just been around everything forever. Right. <laughs> um, at that point, I think I was missing one ski and an ice axe. And to me, that's of little importance compared to what I had just happened. I had fallen a very long ways and gotten extremely lucky that I had these people there to help me. And there was a lot of emotion going on there. There was a lot of terror. There was a lot of shaking in the legs. There was a lot of just having to stop and turn around and look back at what had just happened. Um, as soon as we got off the hogs back, the sun kind of came around the corner and that was a big emotional moment to me to just realize, well, we're out You're of the alive. shit. Yeah. I'm alive. I'm out of the shit at this point. At this point, I just have, I can see my car. It's a long ways down there, but I can see my car and I just have to walk down the hill now. When Scott got to the parking lot, he made his way to ski patrol. They cleaned up his wounds and he gave a full report on exactly what happened. After that, he walked back to his truck to get some rest. When he returned to his truck, he noticed that someone returned his ice axe. 
and he never did find out who it was. Another kind of lucky blessing that day. And so if anybody out there was the one who did return that, please, thank you. I appreciate every moment of that. And that's, it really does mean a lot to me. And I'm going to just lay here and kind of figure out what to do. And I had to make this phone call. I've had to make a few times in my life and it goes to my mom. Um, Oh, these are the hard phone calls. Exactly. (laughs) When you have to call a parent. (laughs) Yep. She's still my emergency contact at this point in my life. And it starts out with, I'm okay, but. And those are hard phone calls to make for me. I'm sure they are going to be the death of my mother. um, Because the next words that come out of but are something terrible has happened. Um, In this case, explaining what had happened to her. She's she's learning very quickly as I get more and more into these sports, what these terms mean, but having to really explain the the gravity of what had just happened. So the phone call kind of went, here's what happened. Here's what I'm going to do. I really need to rest. I am absolutely wired still. So I laid down in the back of my car after getting off the phone and it really did all hit me at once. Every muscle in my body locked up, every emotional synapse in my brain fired. Um, it, it really did all hit and it, it was, it was scary. Um, did you cry? I did cry. Um, and I'm not a, I'm not afraid to admit that. And I screamed into the pillow and I'm sure I got all kinds of weird looks from the other people in the parking lot, but, um, realistically I don't care. Um, how did it feel? When, how did it feel when you cried? Like I said, it was a lot of emotion and it was just a lot of fear. Um, that come down from the adrenaline is, is it's scary. <laughs> Like I said, every muscle cramped up in my body. I couldn't even roll over on my my mattress pad. I had laid in the back of my my CRV. Um, so not only is like the emotional fatigue and pain there, but I'm also just physically tired. I had well, planned you just on, climbed Mount Hood. And, it's true. I had planned <laughs> on that time. day about <laughs> five hours, and I ended up spending I want to say it was seven and a half or eight hours on that mountain. Um, and of course, after I I fell, the last thing on my mind was to eat food and drink water. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not taking down nutrition. I'm not hydrating. So after a couple hours of laying there, I didn't sleep. It was kind of just a, a daze. I finally kind of got the strength to walk back up the hill and find some food. But the story really doesn't end there. I mean, the healing that kind of continues for a long time, and there's a lot of retrospect that has to keep happening and the learning and talking with friends and realizing I'm still new at this. I made a mistake on a normal line, something that people have skied many times. And I got really lucky. My inexperience got, could have got me severely hurt or killed. And I managed to walk away and walk my way off that mountain. I had to take a lot of help from other people. I had to take help from family. As soon as I got down uh, back to Medford to bandage me up and talk me through some of those really scary moments. I did not sleep well that night. There was a lot of fear. And that continues on. Um, There was a a rock climbing accident in Wyoming back over Labor Day on a climb I was supposed to do with a friend. Um, And a person I never met died on that mountain. And the same fear and the same anxiety from that fall down Mount Hood came back to haunt me again. I had to um, call and kind of relive those emotions with a friend and and talk to my mom again and talk kind of through those things. And there's a lot of trauma that goes into these things, you know, and um, we have to learn and we have to push forward and not let those things hold us back from the goals that we want to accomplish. 
But I think it is, it is uh, mature of you to say, yeah, you know, we can't let this hold us back, but uh, it's important to, to understand that there was trauma there. Um, and it's important to work through that trauma, you know? Yeah. And something I learned a long time ago is kind of like, uh, not bottling it up, but really writing them down and finding the big takeaways. Um, realizing that there are steps to steps to growing and the, the, you have to learn from your experiences. We wish we could only learn from other people, but sometimes, sometimes it takes a hard lesson. What were, what were a few of the things that you learned? Yeah. Um, I wrote down four bullet points. I kind of thought these through and didn't put them in words until I, I started thinking about this podcast, but, um, the big one for me, um, was do your research. I think if I had spent some more time in preparation, I would have really known how to get down this mountain. If I would have started later, moved a little slower and tried to ski it at 11 o'clock, which is typically the time people ski that, that run, I would have been fine. Number two, there's a big step up in, uh, in medium lines to more advanced lines on the mountains. I overestimated my abilities and I underestimated a mountain. And the saying goes that we only move through them with their permission. And that day I overstepped and tried to move further than I was able to. Um, I had the fitness. I've been an athlete forever. And just because I have the fitness doesn't necessarily mean I have the skills. Uh, number three, a partner in a mountain is more than just someone to put you on belay and kind of watch you ski in avalanche terrain. Had I been with a friend that day instead of trying to accomplish this thing solo, I'm sure that he would have been, he or she would have been able to talk me out of that bad decision to try and ski earlier or get up so early and move so fast. Um, there really is kind of a psychological component to the, these mountain sports that a lot of people don't think about. And then number four, this one's huge, is that the kindness of strangers is truly incredible. Um, without others, I'm, I'm not sure how that day would have gone. Um, without the extra ice axe to walk down the mountain, without the people to haul me out, without the people to check on me. Throughout that day, throughout the upcoming days afterwards, up to a week afterwards, I was still receiving phone calls and texts from the people that I met on that mountain. Wow. And up to a month afterwards, people have reached out, were reaching out to me on Facebook that saw posts about it online that saw me fall that day and talking about their experience and hell i even got that lost ski back from you did <laughs> i did one of the guys that i met on the mountain that i gave my number to his friend was up there to climb the route the next day and saw the ski and he shipped it out to me here in utah and i've recompleted the set and i've already skied them again this year i mean so it, you've gotten all your gear back i got all of my gear back the only thing i lost was i destroyed my my stupid spandex suit <laughs> Your ski mo suit. My ski mo suit. <laughs> um, I truly am thankful for the family that helped bandage me up, the friends I made on the mountain that day, and the friends I have here in Utah, in Wyoming, and everywhere around that have talked me through some of these these hard times, really. Scott is lucky, but not everyone who falls into a fumarole is so lucky. At this point in the show, I want to bring on an expert about fumaroles to give you some more insight to what Scott was dealing with when he fell in. Pierre Spicinger. He is the co-owner, partner in Vertical Medicine Resources, co-author of Vertical Aid, A Climber's Guide to First Aid, past president, past vice president, past medical committee chairman of Portland Mountain Rescue, and current assistant medical director, rescue leader, and member of the fumarole committee at PMR. 
When he's not climbing and guiding AMGA SPI, he works as a PA in cardiac surgery and critical care. And finally, Pierce is the member at large on the MRA National Mountain Rescue Association Officers Committee. Welcome to the show, Pierce. I'm so glad that you're here. You know, I I say I'm an expert, but I think that's only because I'm one of the few people who's encountered the fumarole uh, from the from the belly of the beast. Uh, we've we've had two documented rescues uh, with our rescue team on Mount Hood, but fumaroles, you know, they are all over the mountain or all over the world rather. Uh, they they exist on volcanoes. They're they're gas vents uh, of of a volcano system that uh, release the gases from from the belly of the volcano. And in the case of Mount Hood. You, they're consisting of you know four different gases. Of course, you have oxygen and, and carbon dioxide, but you also have hydrogen sulfide and, and sulfur dioxide. And, and Mount Hood's gas percentages are, are different than, say, like Mount St. Helens or Mount Rainier. And it presents a unique challenge to each different mountain and to know the contents of those gases before you go in. So... And uh, two separate uh, rescues, I've been, I've been the guy who went in the hole to, to pull somebody out. And I had a lot of other people on the other side of uh, the rope who helped me uh, make that happen. I couldn't do it without a great team. So with Portland Mountain Rescue, um, I'm, I'm just, I guess, stoked to hear about Scott Miller's uh, encounter. Sad for him that he had to go through such an ordeal, but so uh, happy to hear that he survived it and is, is moving on with life. I know there's a lot of challenges after a an event like that. And you've had Laura McGladry on here talking about psych first aid and stress injury and really important to just, you know, think about those things when, when a big event like this happens uh, in your life that it doesn't freeze you and, and say, I used to be a climber, but you can't move on from that. So mm-hmm. I'm really glad he's moving on with that. But um, with hydrogen sulfide and sulfur dioxide, the, the two gases of, of main concern and CO2 is, is a problem as well. Uh, that presents a, a hazard, not just to the people who fall in the hole, but also to the rescuers who have to go in after them. Uh, we have uh, specially designed systems within Portland Mountain Rescue to make that possible to you know, mitigate that risk or overcome that risk. We've, we've developed specialized rope rescue systems and uh, certain ways that we do our anchors and how we package patients and, and different medical protocols just for the funeral environment. We even carry uh, air purifying respirators and gas monitors to know before you go, you know, know, know before you jump in the hole uh, to uh, save somebody uh, what you're going to be encountering. So with that comes just, you know, train, 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 you know, practice for the, the, hopeful, the hopeful thing that you never have to encounter. But uh, history has shown for us that uh, people occasionally fall into uh, this hole. And, and this particular funeral that Scott encountered is right uh, in the sort of hazard zone, the fall zone of the Mount Hood Summit, uh, the, the standard south side route that people make their way up if, if they have a, a misstep. Uh, they can find themselves falling into the fumarole, and that that fumarole varies in depth from one year to the next. It could be you know 20 feet deep, it could be 60 feet deep, uh, but uh, then you're in this environment where the gases are toxic. You've maybe had a few orthopedic injuries during during the long fall that got you down there, and uh, presents a, a unique challenge. Do a lot of people fall in that specific fumarole on the top, sort of near the near the summit of Hood? You know that 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 place between the the Hogsback Ridge and the and the summit uh, is a uh, frequent area where people have a misstep. You know, you have people who are short roping together. Uh, they uh, don't have their crampons on, and they're trying to down climb. Uh, they have a, a crampon that gets loose on them, uh, or they just have a bad day, uh, and they they trip and fall. 
other times you have people who are trying to ski off the summit, which is totally rad. I mean, I, I support that. If you're an A plus skier, go for it, man. That's awesome. But, but you got to be careful and not overestimate your ability or underestimate what the mountain may throw at you. Uh, that route can be some pretty, pretty awesome powder, but it can also pretty some uh, pretty gnarly ice and you, you don't want to, uh, uh, overestimate your skiing ability when there's such a big hazard lying right below you. Can you see the fumes or are there fumes? Do you, do you know that it's there? Well, yeah, most people who've climbed hood, uh, when you get close to the summit, you begin to start smelling this rotten eggs, sulfur like smell. And you may not know exactly where it's coming from. There's a couple of fumaroles in the area. There's one over in the, uh, at the bottom of, um, uh, the Devil's Kitchen head wall, and then the one over where Scott encountered was over by an area we call Hot Rocks, and that's the one that seems to capture most people uh, tripping and falling off of the uh, the old chute or the Mazama chute route, and uh, they tumble down into the fall. It's, it's a it's a pretty long fall. It's a few hundred feet fall uh, before they actually go into the hole, and then the hole can be a varying depths depending on what time of season it is. Then it's dark and cold and icy and, and you know full of bad gases. These gases can have uh, permanent injuries. They they uh, lead to neurologic problems and uh, more concerning is is the risk of asphyxiation and, and not being able to oxygenate and eventually succumbing to to death because of the gases. So uh, that that can change from one day to the next, from one wind pattern to the next. Uh, the gas concentrations vary uh, a lot. But, you know, Portland Mountain Rescue, we, we study the epidemiology of the mountain. When are these injuries? When are the falls happening? What are the days that we need to be on the mountain? So we, you know, we put ourselves high on the mountain on days that we think that are going to be increased risk for climbers. You know, and there's going to be less people climbing in a whiteout, for example, than there are on a beautiful bluebird Saturday morning in, in early May, that type right. of thing. Right. But... I think uh, actually a lot of the things that lead to problems on the mountain, whether it's falling in a fumarole or, or getting lost in a whiteout or whatever, uh, fall in the realm of the same heuristic traps that you've heard about when people are making bad decisions uh, in avalanche conditions. You know, they, they've climbed the route, you know, 30 times before and they're really familiar with it or, uh, you know, they, they're climbing with somebody who's been there before them and there's a sort of this expert halo type of thing. Uh, I think in Scott Miller's uh, situation, you know, there was a, a little bit of that, that scarcity component where he had a, a big agenda to climb Hood and then Shasta, and he's going to go play in Yosemite, and he got this big plan, and it sounded like an awesome trip planned. Unfortunately, this was a little hiccup. But when Mount Hood is so close to the Portland metropolitan area, you can literally drive there in an hour from the airport. Uh, people have that time crunch, like, oh, I got I to gotta do it. Today's the day. I, I know it's a whiteout, but I'm going to go up. Um, you know, things like that. So the, the scarcity of time uh, is also a big push for people to try to, you know, bang out the summit before they have to get back to real life and enter back to the COVID world. What are you supposed to do when you fall into a funeral? Yeah, don't fall on one. Uh, bring a friend uh, to get you out. And um, yeah, if you do, if you do get in one, the goal uh, is to get out as quickly as possible. And in fact, a lot of our training with PMR, uh, there are things that we do in taking care of patients in different parts of the mountain where we have a little bit more time to stop and take care of the patient, you know, you know, tuck in, tuck in the sheets and make them super comfortable or whatever. Well, in the funeral, it's, it's not that type of environment. It's more like a burning car environment. You get in, you get them out, and then you deal with the other issues once you get them out. It is a little difficult to, to climb out of these funerals. There's, it can be a very vertical environment. 
Uh, it's mixed substrate, so it could be crumbly, nasty rock that uh, you put your ice tool in it, and then a spray of gas goes in your face, uh, and then then you're back on the ice again, and then you're back on the snow, and then you're back on a crumbly rock, and then and two steps forward, one step back, all the while while you can't breathe, and there's gas trying to kill you, and it's dark, and your headlamp fell off a long time ago. And, and you don't it. have an ice tool. And you don't have an ice tool because you stashed it on your pack and you still have one ski on your foot instead of a crampon. So it's, you know, it's all of those things, all the worst nightmares you can think of happening simultaneously. Well, and then you're also putting yourself at risk because if you've got, like you said, you've gone in twice now into this hole to rescue these people. And so you're putting yourself in danger because you're in, I mean, you're, you must be wearing a respirator when you go in, right? I am now. Yeah. The first two times we didn't have this robust protocol that we have now. And I'm really grateful for the other members of PMR who helped uh, make the funeral committee and put, put together all these uh, safeguards to help keep us you know, somewhat safe while we go to rescue other people uh, in that environment. Is there, a, is there a way or a place that people can go to donate to PMR for the funeral committee? Absolutely. You know, we could always use a new gas monitor and they're not cheap, but uh, www.pmru.org, or you can just Google Portland Mountain Rescue. You can find us on Facebook too. Thanks Pierce from Portland Mountain Rescue for sharing his expertise on funerals with all of us. Thanks to Scott for being on the show. And thanks to Rocky Talkie, Koros, Desert Mountain Medicine, and the American Alpine Club. To learn more about becoming a member of the American Alpine Club, visit AmericanAlpineClub.org. I partnered with Assesso Hemp during CBD Awareness Month in January so we could all learn the benefits of CBD. Assesso CBD products literally helped nurse my injured hamstring back to strength. And I'd like to say thank you to Assesso Hemp for making a product that actually works. Check them out at AssessoHemp.com to get 25% off anything they have in store with code SHARPEN at checkout. Desert Mountain Medicine, innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. Are you an avid winter backcountry enthusiast? DMM has launched a new course called Wilderness First Aid for Winter Backcountry Users. This 16-hour course focuses on prevention, assessment, and treatment of injuries and illnesses common to the winter backcountry recreation and includes the wilderness medicine guidelines for the treatment of avalanche victims. This course is also offered as part of Women's Wild Med Program. Use promo code SHARP for WINTER for a 10% discount on this course. To learn more and sign up, visit DesertMountainMedicine.com. Don't forget to do the survey. And remember, play hard and be smart.